Uh, if you were here, I guess, two months ago, first time I preached, I preached on 1 Timothy 2, and I've since then decided to preach through the New Testament backwards. Uh, no, nah, I'm just kidding. That would make no sense. Uh, but we'll be in uh, verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1. But uh, since we're so near the beginning, we'll just take it from the top. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which... They make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Without your word, we would walk in darkness and fear and uncertainty. Yet you have spoken, and every word of the Lord proves true, for you are a shield of those who take refuge in you. And we come to you, people who need refuge from our troubles, from our pain, from our own sin. O oh Lord, be merciful to us. Speak to us now in your word. Let your words be many and my words be few, for you are our teacher, and you are here who we need to hear from. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Where were you on the night... Of May 2nd, 2011. It's okay if you don't know. It's okay if you weren't born yet. 
that night, I do remember where I was. I had, was a high school senior. I was at home. I was watching the Atlanta Braves, as is my usual habit. And I had, I think, gone to do something on the family computer. My back was turned to the TV. And all of a sudden, I hear this murmur in the crowd. And nothing had happened in the game, but there had been uh, a news flash posted on the scoreboard. Osama bin Laden had been killed. Ten years it took, and we finally got him. And I think one by one, the fans started to notice, and this murmur turned into a roar, and they broke out in that old chant, you know, na, 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 hey, 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 goodbye. I'm not going to sing that. That would be a bit <laughs> ambitious for my first <laughs> Sunday morning. And I want you to consider, is it a good thing for tens of thousands of people to, 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 uh, to cheer another man's death? And the answer is yes. It's, if you look through the Psalms, a, a big concern of God's people is that God would stop the wicked. That God would stop the people that abuse the Lord and his people. It was a good thing to celebrate a man like bin Laden being stopped. But what if things had gone differently? What if bin Laden hadn't been gunned down in that compound that night? And what if he had been taken alive? And what if he had been converted in prison? Would people still celebrate that? And I think this church would. It'd be an amazing thing, a wondrous thing to see uh, a man like him come to faith. It'd be a death blow to Islam. What if then he was let out for good behavior? What if he was let out on parole? And what if he went to RTS? What if he graduated and became a pastor in our presbytery? And at some point, you might hear this and say, okay, well, this is getting ridiculous. I mean, it's good for criminals to receive mercy, but you've got to draw the line somewhere, right? Is it right for a man like bin Laden, who lived his life as a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent of Christianity to be handed off the, king, the keys to the kingdom? Maybe you get my point by now. I'm not saying there's complete overlap between bin Laden and the Apostle Paul, but there is some of it, Right? We tend to forget that because we think of Paul as the man who's told us such wonderful things in Scripture. Apostle Paul told us uh, that it is by grace we've been saved through faith. That we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul told us that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What do we do about Paul's past, though? What do we do with the fact that God took a murderer like Paul and put him in charge of the church? Well, before we come to the part of the text we're focusing on, well, let me catch you up to speed. And 1 Timothy is a book about how to pastor a struggling church in Ephesus. And have you ever heard from other Christians that what we need to do is get back to this golden age of the first century church? 1 Timothy will uh, knock that idea out of you pretty quickly. You don't have to look that hard to see that the church in Ephesus was in bad shape. It was in bad shape because false teachers were causing all kinds of trouble by talking about things that didn't matter. They were talking about myths and genealogies and speculations that didn't add up. These false teachers were distracting the church. And Paul goes on in verse 8 to talk about why the law, teaching the law, still matters. And his point is that we need the law because of the bad guys. We need the law because of people whose lives go off the rails. Because of people who reject God, use foul language, and abuse people in all kinds of horrible ways. And you might say to yourself, well, gee, that sounds a lot like my neighbors. (laughs) Sounds a lot like the evening local news. And maybe your blood pressure starts to rise because this world is pretty messed up, isn't it? But then Paul turns his attention in a different direction. 
He starts to talk about himself. He reflects on his own apostleship, his own testimony. And as we come to the part of the text we're focusing on, verse 12, we divide it up into three parts. And the first section is simply thanksgiving to Jesus. Now, normally when Paul gives thanksgiving for the churches he writes to, he gives thanks to God. Or to God the Father, or perhaps to the Father and Christ together. But here it's different. Paul gives his thanksgiving directly to Jesus. To Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a statement of faith in Christ's divinity. Of Christ's absolute sufficiency. Of his control over everything happening in the world. The Lord Jesus' last words before he ascended to heaven were, All authority in heaven on earth have been given to me. And I want you to know that's good news because there's no one more qualified for you to go to for strength in Jesus as he is now in heaven. That's not just because Jesus is God, because he's mighty and omnipotent, unknowing, but because he's all human. There's no one better to go to for strengthening than Jesus because Jesus too once needed strengthening. A few weeks ago in morning worship, we studied his third temptation. That narrative ends with the angels coming to minister to Jesus because resisting Satan took a lot out of him. The Lord Jesus knows what it means to be weak. He knows what it means to be hungry, to be tired, to be exhausted, to need rest. I love what the author of Hebrews says, that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So do you feel weighed down by the troubles in your life? Do you groan to hear your alarm clock go off on Monday mornings because that means another long week in a job you want out of? Do you feel discouraged by chronic illness? Do you struggle with loneliness or depression? Friends, if you do, follow Paul. Go to Jesus for strength. He's always glad, and Jesus is always ready to strengthen those who are weak because he knows what it's like to be there. Now, Paul not only gives thanks for Jesus' work of strengthening, but also for his act of sending. Jesus' goal in strengthening you is not just to make you feel better or to heal you, but to put you to work. For Paul, that was the work of being an apostle. There's this curious line about Christ having judged him faithful. What's Paul getting at there? Did Paul have a good track record before Jesus put him to work? No. What he's saying is that Christ's work of strengthening had a real effect on him. Christ's work of regeneration, of rebirth, made real lasting changes in Paul's heart and character. Christ qualified Paul for the office of apostleship. And that work is all the more amazing when you look at what Paul has to say in verse 13 about himself. He gets specific. He's not vague. doesn't speak in generalities. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Do you remember what Paul had to say a paragraph earlier about all the evil men who God lays down the law for? Paul was one of those men. Paul's rebellion against God was comprehensive. He rebelled with his speech. He was a blasphemer. He said terrible things about the Lord and about his church. His rebellion was violent. He killed Christians maliciously. And he killed Christians efficiently. The book of Acts said that Paul went house to house, his name was Saul back then, dragging away Christians and putting them in prison. If you were a Christian in the early church in Jerusalem in the 30s, Paul might have appeared in your nightmares. 
can't gloss over that. And then we come to our second point, and it's simply what Jesus did for Paul. And we come to those next four words, and they're some of the best in all Scripture that you'll find. But I received mercy. But how does that strike you in a case like this? Right, because if we're honest with ourselves, there are some people that we just don't want to receive mercy. Some people cross the line too many times. A couple months ago, I remember watching a video of a, a, a testimony of a Christian counselor named Heath Lambert. He used to teach counseling at Southern Seminary where Michael's getting his PhD, and his testimony centered around his relationship with his mother. Sounds good. But the first thing Dr. Lambert said about his mother was that she was the most wicked woman he had ever met. That'll get your attention, won't it? (laughs) After listening to what he had to say for 20 minutes, I believed him. I'll spare you the details, but I will say one, and this wasn't even the most disturbing to me, but on one occasion, it was Christmas Day, she unloaded a six-shooter at her sons. They tried to get away on their bikes, and praise the Lord, she missed. After listening to the story of this awful woman who abused her children in terrible ways, he just wanted her to get her due, right? He wanted justice to be done. And then he described, after 13 years of witnessing to her, she was converted. And the strangest thing happened to me as Dr. Lambert describes his mother getting on her knees, reading 1 John, and praying to ask Jesus to forgive her sins, I felt angry. And then I realized I had been at the men's retreat like eight hours ago teaching on Jonah 4. You know where Jonah gets mad at God for forgiving the Ninevites whom he hated? And what was I doing? I was being selective with who I wanted God to give mercy to because I love God's mercy for myself and I love it for my family, but there are some people who I wish he would hold it back from. There's no way to prove it, but I think it's possible that there are people in this church, the Ephesian church, whom Paul's writing to, whose relatives Paul might have killed. And this man not only received forgiveness, but he received authority in the church. That's mercy. That's mercy that's shocking. And maybe if we're being hypocritical, it's a bit offensive. And then Paul gives the reason he was forgiven. He says, it was because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. What point is Paul making there? Is he saying God let him off the hook just because he didn't know better? Kind of like we wish if we could just say, officer, I didn't know what the speed limit was. He just let us off. Don't you love it when the cops do that? It's true we're all guilty. It's true we all deserve judgment whether we hear the gospel or not. But there is the hard truth that for some people, the window of opportunity closes. For those who have heard the gospel, who know exactly who Jesus is, who know exactly what he's done, and who reject it, the window of mercy can close. Now, Paul had sinned in unspeakably horrible ways, but it was against a Savior he didn't yet truly know, and so the result is in verse 14. I love this image of the grace of our Lord overflowing because there are times when he feels so distant, times in our lives when we feel like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and coming back toward us. There are times when we've wandered, when we let that sin that we thought we'd put away come back and and get the best of us. And we wonder whether we've run out of second or third or 500th chances. And in those moments, remember verse 14. God's grace is not dripping on you. It's overflowing. You can't hold it back. 
You can't use it up. And look at how God's grace dealt with Paul's sin. God's grace overflowed with faith and love. Because faith supplanted Paul's unbelief and love supplanted his hatred. The grace of God works. It changes us. It really does change us and it really does renew us. And God's grace does not let us off the hook and let us go our own way. It's at work in you. And it will continue to be. In verse 15, Paul gets to the point of this story. Paul's testimony is a good one. It's a great story. It's a great story of Jesus getting hold of one of his enemies. But what's the payoff for us? Well, as we saw in our second point, which is what Jesus did for Paul, our third point is what Jesus does for us. And Paul telegraphs that what he's saying in verse 15 is really important, really basic. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full sentence, and maybe we're expecting a deep theological inside, or maybe we're expecting Paul to turn a neat phrase. But no, the truth that we must trust and accept, chew on and digest, is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's that simple, and that's why we're here. That's why Jesus came. Why would Jesus leave behind a perfect life, perfect glory, perfect union with the Father, and come into our world? Well, it's to save sinners. To save sinners completely, not to do 90% of the work, leave the rest to us, not to make salvation a possibility, but to make it certain. Everything Jesus did in his life, Every time he obeyed his parents as a kid, every time he had a conversation with someone, every time he ate and drank every ounce of pain he endured on the cross, he did to ensure, to make certain that we would escape God's wrath and be reconciled to him. That's what Jesus came to do, and he did that to save you. If you haven't yet, he calls you to turn to him, to turn from your sin and receive him as the king and savior that he is. One of the biggest signs that truth, that, that, that this truth, the truth of the gospel, has gotten into your bones is that you begin to love people. Because you realize you're not any better than anyone else. And Paul went all the way to say that he's the foremost of sinners. And in a certain sense, Paul's speaking with this specific situation in mind. You might have done some really bad things, but you probably can't top what Paul did. At least I hope you can. But notice the verb tense. Does Paul say, I was the chief of sinners? No, he says, I am the chief of sinners. And Paul had been a Christian for a really long time at this point. It probably been at least 25 years ago since the Lord Jesus met him on the Damascus Road and got a hold of his heart. Paul had a pretty good track record at this point to boast in. In 1 Corinthians, he says he's worked harder than any of the other apostles. Can you imagine Michael getting up at Presbytery and saying, Fathers and brothers, here's the thing. I work harder than any of you. That would be a bold statement, and Paul made it. But what's Paul say here? He says he's the foremost. He's the chief of sinners. No matter what kind of life you lived before you came to Christ, no matter what you've done after, you can say the same thing. Not because it's a game of comparison, and if I sin more than my friend, or is he sin more than me, but because you know your own heart best. You know your own thoughts better than you know anyone else's. What happens when a group of people really believes this, that they're the biggest sinner they know? Well, showing mercy becomes natural, and forgiveness becomes doable. And carrying grudges seems like a silly thing to do because 
we realize that we've been forgiven from Jesus for way more than any, we need to forgive anyone else. In verse 16, Paul goes back to his own testimony. Jesus showed mercy to him in particular. He looks back on his life and his testimony. He sees that there was a reason why Jesus dealt with him the way that he did. And the reason was us. Why would Jesus save a man like Paul? Was it because he needed Paul's intellect or his knowledge of the scriptures? Was Paul the ace in the hole that Jesus needed to, to reach the Gentiles? Well, no, not at all. So why did he save him? Why save Paul? It was so he could show his perfect patience. Show the full extent of his patience. That Jesus' patience isn't just for the normal sins that we all do and don't think much of. It was for the biggest sins that we hope no one ever finds out about. And Jesus put that patience on display for us that we would follow in Paul's footsteps. That we might look in Paul and say, you know what? In my heart of hearts, I'm just like him. And I need to be forgiven. That's Paul's example. And if you've ever doubted, if you're ever haunted by your past and wonder if there's still grace for you, look at what Jesus did to Paul. Jesus took public enemy number one of the church and made him into a five-star general. How does this passage help us reflect on our own testimony? Well, it reminds us that God runs our lives in a way that benefits his people. Our testimony is just not about us. And I want that to be an encouragement to you because it's so easy to kick ourselves for our past and for how long maybe it took us to learn. Why didn't I come to Christ sooner? Why did it take me so long to break that habit or make that change in my life? And it's good to mourn the sins of the past. That's a good thing to, to be sorrowful. But don't be overwhelmed. It might well be that your own story of how God was long-suffering with you for a long time will give others hope for themselves or for their family. Because that's what Paul's example does for us, isn't it? Should it not give us great hope? Hope that it's never too late for people who seem too far gone. And we all have those people in our lives, don't we, who seem so hardened. That's not to mention ourselves when we so often seem to be spinning our wheels at times spiritually. Paul's example gives us hope that no one is beyond the reaches of God's grace. And what follows is one of the grandest doxologies in all of Scripture, verse 17. Now you might expect Paul to extol God's love or his grace or his kindness, but that's not what you find. What sticks out is God's vastness, his transcendence. And what led Paul to go there in his mind? Why meditate on these attributes of God in particular? Well, it was was his own testimony. The story of how this great God, who is beyond time and all limitation, broke into Paul's life and turned it around for good and for his glory. So what's the takeaway for us? One of the funny things about being a Christian in America is that in one sense, we have way more blessings than anyone else in human history. I live 10 miles away, and I got here without breaking a sweat. That's pretty awesome. (laughs) And yet, as a result, we can have such small faith because our faith barely gets stretched, at least not like it does for many other Christians around the world who wake up and don't know where their next meal is coming from. And the result at times is that our view of God is so small And maybe we might think to ourselves, you know, I just need God to do something really big. 
I need God to do a miracle in my life, and that's how I'll grow. But what's our text say? He already did, right? The eternal, immortal, invisible God fit himself into time and space, and he saved sinners. Do you want to see how big and amazing God is? Well, look in the mirror and see what he's done for you and he's doing in you, how he's been there for you and come through for you time and time again. And that's how your faith grows. Look back at what Jesus has done in your life. If you don't know him, come to him. He came into the world to save you. And if Paul's story is any indication, he can give you new life like you'd never expect. So let it be for all of us, no matter how long we've known the Lord, that we'd remember that we're still sinners in need of grace and see in our need we'd never stop going to the Lord Jesus for strength that we might serve him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can trust the statement that you came into the world to save sinners, Lord. Oh, Lord, may we never forget that. We are often busy with many things, many good things, but let us never forget the most basic that you have saved us. Lord, drive the gospel into our hearts that we might live our lives more joyful, more merciful towards others, more patient with others, remembering that you have been patient with us. Let your word dwell in us richly that we might praise you all the more gladly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.